Welcome to part 15 of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, where Rainy Day Investigations is born out of a confluence of circumstances, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible, so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps me to allow to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So, make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon, using the links in this episode's description, to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 49 Jennifer was holding court in front of her students when Nate sneaked in the back. She was lecturing them about the various cultures who shared reincarnation beliefs while a digital slide presentation served as a backdrop. She had on the same type of outfit he had seen her wear previously for teaching, a kind of modern female Indiana Jones, he realized. Jennifer completed the lecture and opened the floor up to questions. Nearly every hand in the room shot up. Any questions that are not about the Luther Laramie case? she asked. All the hands slowly sank back down. Jennifer sighed. All right, she said, but this is the last time. The hands flew up again, and she began calling on students who posed various questions regarding the case. Many of them seemed rather well-versed. A few questions in, Jennifer caught sight of Nate in the back row and smiled. Professor, one of the students began, the news reports mentioned that you had enlisted a police detective to help you investigate this case. What did he think? Why don't you ask him, Jennifer said, casting her gaze to the back of the room where Nate was sitting. Everyone turned around and looked at him. Nate wanted to flee. He wasn't prepared for a grilling from the press, let alone a classroom of Jennifer Day's students. No comment, he said, hoping that would cut off any further inquiry before things got out of hand. I think I can safely relay that Detective Rainey remains a skeptic on matters of the paranormal. But I can tell you, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him being there. The details of Nate's career-ending efforts to save Jennifer from falling had never made it into any of the news reports. The whole hero cop thing would have made things even more difficult for Nate to deal with, and Jennifer had respected that. Has Miss Collins seen Luther since that night? Jennifer shook her head. No. Hopefully his spirit or whatever part of him felt obligated to remain on this plane is at rest now. No magic trick today? Another student asked. Here's a trick. All of your questions made the rest of the class period disappear. A buzzer sounded. The students groaned in disappointment. Okay, that's enough for now. Remember, you have papers due this Friday, no extensions. The students started gathering their things and filing out of the lecture hall. Some of them offered a tentative greeting to Nate as they exited, unsure how to treat him. When about half of them had exited, Nate saw the dean enter. The administrator made his way against the flow of bodies like a shark cutting through a school of herring. He approached Jennifer and waited for the remaining students to exit and give them some privacy before speaking to her. You've been avoiding my calls, Dr. Day, he said to Jennifer. Sorry, she answered. I haven't been spending a lot of time in my office. It's being fumigated for athlete's foot. Yes, well, if you had bothered to return any of my calls, you would be aware that those facilities are no longer available to you. Thank God, Jennifer said. Does this mean you're done punishing me? Dr. Day, the dean continued. It's not about punishment. It's about what's best for this institution. And having the name of this esteemed school, along with one of its professors, demeaned on every front page and website is simply unacceptable. I warned you about bringing this kind of publicity to the school. 
It wasn't that long ago that you tried to use my reputation to land a big donation. Yes, and we all know how well that worked out. I never mentioned the university when I spoke with the press. They made that association, not me. Regardless, it was your actions, your defiance, your self-aggrandizing behavior that instigated the attention, and you leave me with no options. Really? Jennifer said with contempt. What's next? The men's room at the stadium? I don't think you understand what I'm saying. Your office privileges are being revoked completely. Jennifer stared at him in disbelief. I'm a full-tenured professor at this school. How am I supposed to do my job without an office? Also, we can no longer support funding for the teaching and research assistants. You're going to punish my staff, too? Dave will never be able to find another faculty sponsor this far into his dissertation. The blame is completely at your feet, Dr. Day. You will have access to the department conference room for office hours with your students. But regardless of your tenure, we have no obligation to provide you facilities to perpetuate your extracurricular activities. I'm sure with your popularity you will have no trouble finding alternate arrangements. What, you're not taking away my classes, too? We'll evaluate any additional administrative actions at a later date. I expect you to have your belongings removed from your office by the end of business tomorrow. He turned and started walking away. It really bugs you, doesn't it? Jennifer said. The dean turned back. What bugs me? That I get more attention than you. That you do everything you can to put this department on the map, purely with your stuffy, old, discredited theories. But it's me who gets the press. Me who gets the television interviews. You're just an anonymous cog in the wheel of this institution. You could be replaced tomorrow, and no one would remember what you even looked like a week later. How many names of the students who just walked by do you know? Any of them? Are they just numbers on a spreadsheet to you? You don't know what you're talking about, the dean said. I am this department, and this department is me, and I won't have you sullying its good name. You're an ass. That's all you are, have ever been, and ever will be. A complete and utter ass that smells, has horrible teeth, and probably is awful in bed. The dean broke eye contact with Jennifer at that point, shocked by her blunt language. I'll excuse that comment considering the circumstances. I remind you that you always have the option of resigning your position. Ah, that's what this is all about. You're trying to get me to quit. Well, that's not going to happen, Bobby. Get used to me being around. The dean looked back at Jennifer, realizing that somehow he was the loser in this particular battle, but with a look of determination that the war would continue. He spun around and headed for the exit. Nate got up from where he was seated and walked directly at the self-absorbed bastard. When they met halfway up the aisle, the dean waited for Nate to step aside so he could proceed. But Nate didn't move. He stood his ground and gave the cocky administrator a glare that would have made a hardened criminal pee in his pants. The dean's demeanor changed as he evaluated Nate, and he decided to slink around the detective rather than challenging him. A wise move, Nate thought. Nate continued toward the edge of the stage where Jennifer was shoving her notes and some student papers into her bag. Tears threatened to well up in her eyes, but she held them back. I'm sorry, Nate said. What for? You're not the arrogant prick who's trying to upend my career. Jennifer wiped at her eyes with the back of her hand and forced a smile onto her lips. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't mean to take that out on you. Be my guest, Nate offered. You're sweet, Jennifer said. But you don't deserve the shit I want to shovel down that man's throat right now. Okay, offer rescinded. Jennifer smiled again, genuinely this time grateful that someone was there to keep her from exploding with rage. I never thought it would actually come to this. She put her hand over her mouth to keep from sobbing. Oh, poor Dave. He can't afford to finish his doctorate without this job. 
Jennifer moved toward Nate and wrapped her arms around him in a comforting hug. Nate was a bit surprised by the gesture, but he put his hand on her back as he felt her tears soak into his shirt. You'll figure something out, Nate said reassuringly. She broke away from Nate suddenly, a look of panic in her eyes. My stuff. I don't have any room in that shoebox I call an apartment for all our gear, and my posters, and my files. Without thinking, Nate offered. You can leave it at my place until you get settled somewhere, if you like. Are you sure? Jennifer asked. Yeah, no problem, Nate answered. She grabbed him into another hug. First you saved my life, and now you saved my ass. Thank you. Nate answered with a gentle pat on her back. Chapter 50 Nate woke up to the sound of knocking, alternating with his doorbell ringing. He was used to the pain in his shoulder, but he must have slept on it funny because it hurt like hell this morning. He sat up, his vision still blurry, and swung his feet onto the floor. Madge yelped when he stepped on her paw. He should have been used to her sneaking out of her kennel and curling up next to his bed, but the urgency of the knocking downstairs threw him off. He grabbed a robe from the bathroom, slipped his good arm in its sleeve, and draped the rest of it over his other arm and cinched the belt up with one hand, a move he was getting quite adept at. Madge got underfoot as he made his way down the stairs. I'm coming, he shouted. The dog made it to the door before him and started barking at whomever was on the other side. What's up, Madge? Did you order a dog food delivery or something? Nate reached the front door and undid the locks. He opened it and saw Dave and Emily from Jennifer's office standing there. Madge jumped up on Dave and nearly knocked him over. Dave stumbled back a bit. Hey, Madge, take it easy. Can we get on with this? I need to get back to bed, Emily said. Where do you want it? Where do I want what? Nate asked. Emily waved at someone on the street. Nate peered out the door and saw that there was a moving van parked in front of his house. A group of what Nate assumed were students started hauling boxes out of the back of it and marching them up to the front door. What's going on? Nate asked. Dr. Day said we're moving in here. Moving in? I told her she could keep some stuff here. I thought you'd be putting some boxes in the garage. She said you have a bunch of spare rooms. Some of the students carried their loads up to the door. Straight in, through the kitchen, the room in the back, Dave instructed. Nate stepped aside as students marched back and forth through his house. Where can I set up my stuff? Bits asked from behind Nate. Nate jumped with surprise. He turned and saw Jennifer's tech guy standing in the middle of his living room. Set up? The attic looks big enough. You mind if I run a 240 line up there? Thanks. He grabbed a milk crate full of gear and headed up the steps. Wait, when were you upstairs? Nate turned back to Dave. Where's Dr. Day? Dave shrugged. She said she would be here. Two students, wielding the enormous poster of the mysterious professor, Jennifer's magician alter ego, squeezed in the front door. Where does this go? One of them asked. The larger-than-life image of Jennifer glared at Nate. Straight back to Dr. Day's office, Dave answered. Office? Nate asked. Wait a minute. I just said she could keep some stuff here. Sometimes when you say yes to Dr. Day, you think it's one thing, but it's really something else entirely. You'll get used to it. Dave said. He picked up the cases he had carried to the front door and joined the procession of movers carrying stuff into Nate's house. Nate turned to Emily. She shrugged and stepped into the house and headed up the stairs. Everyone, just stop, he shouted. The procession came to a halt. After a moment, one of the students meekly asked, Can I put this down? It's really heavy. Sure, Nate said. Why not? He shuffled back into his living room and dropped into his easy chair. The pain in his shoulder flared up. He closed his eyes, hoping he was having a bad dream. Why is everyone just standing around? Jennifer asked. Nate opened his eyes and saw Jennifer standing in his doorway. She was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. 
something completely uncharacteristic for her. Oh, good morning, Nate, she said. Good morning. I meant to get here before they did, Jennifer explained. Oh, Nate said. And? And I was going to tell you, or rather ask you, since you have such a big place, and it's just you and Madge, and the dean took away my office privileges, that maybe you might not mind if we borrowed some of your extra space for a while. Jennifer looked to Nate, hoping to see some indication that her recitation of the situation had softened the fact that he had woken up to an army of volunteers, transforming his home into her office. He merely sat in his chair, stone-faced. Borrowed for how long? he asked. Well, actually, I was thinking. You mentioned that you were going to open up your own private investigation firm, and investigating is part of what we do. And I thought we did a pretty good job working together, so maybe we could help each other out. Nate nodded. I see. You'd be amazed at the number of calls and emails and messages we get. A lot of them are people who need a detective more than a parapsychologist. We could create an amazing synergy. Synergy. I mean, I know it's a big house, but when Bits showed me the floor plan and how much space you have upstairs that you're not using, and that den off the kitchen would make a terrific office, we could get two big desks and put them in the middle of the room so they're facing each other. Wouldn't that be great? Wait, how did Bits get the floor plan to my house? Never mind, don't answer that. We're going to share an office? Yes? Jennifer asked questioningly. Nate, I'm sorry to spring this on you like this, but... After the dean hit me with the whole office eviction thing, and you offered to let me bring my stuff here, one thought just led to another, and I got really excited, and I just convinced myself that you would be as excited as I was. But I'm thinking that's not quite how it's working out. I'm sorry. Can I still keep some stuff here for a while? Just until I find something? Nate nodded at the sofa. Have a seat. Jennifer tentatively crossed over and slowly lowered herself onto the sofa. Madge trotted over, jumped up next to her, and laid her head in Jennifer's lap. Nate sighed. Okay. Okay? Jennifer asked. Okay, which part? Well, the whole sharing an office thing we'll have to talk about, but you're right. I have a lot of room. It never felt empty before I started spending all my time here. It might be nice to have someone besides Madge for company. The dog whimpered at the sound of her name. Oh, that reminds me, Dave said. He disappeared into the kitchen, then returned a moment later with a small, spherical device. Nate recognized it as one of the cameras Bits had set up at Diane's place. I left this in the kitchen to see if I could find out how Madge was getting out of her cage. Nate raised an eyebrow. You've been spying on me for the last week? No, it's not connected. It was just set the motion activation and store the video on an SD card. Dave popped the tiny memory card out of the camera. Anyone have a laptop handy? Emily appeared and set her computer on the coffee table. She snatched the memory card out of Dave's fingers and popped it into a slot on the side. With a couple taps on her touchpad, she had the video from the camera playing full screen. Madge's kennel was full frame. In the video, Nate opened the door to the cage and ordered Madge inside. She obeyed and curled up on the blanket, her chin on her paws, looking up at Nate with sad eyes as he locked her in. Nate left the frame and turned off the lights in the kitchen. The camera switched to night vision. There was a jump in the video and now Madge was on her feet. She peered out through the door of the cage, then moved to the back of the wireframe kennel and squeezed her nose into one corner. The entire frame of the kennel moved as she created a gap between the side wall and the back one. Nate had never checked to see if the corners were all properly connected to each other. He had always assumed she was somehow squeezing out the door. Madge continued to widen the gap, forcing her entire head through, then her whole body. 
Once she had squeezed out of the cage, the sidewall snapped back into place, leaving what looked like a securely locked cage behind. She trotted out of the kitchen, and the video ended. So much for being at Lillian, Nate said. I should have gone double or nothing on our bet. Yeah, I did want to bring that up, but you do kind of owe me a conversation, Jennifer said. How do you figure that? Nate asked. All you have are some squiggly lines on the screen, hardly definitive proof. What are you talking about? Diane saw Luther. Yeah, the woman who got hit on the head. He's got a point, Dave chimed in. Jennifer gave him a reproachful glare. Thanks, Dave, Nate said. You get your pick of the upstairs rooms. Dave gave an excited fit pump. Yes! How about we call it a draw and keep it open-ended, Nate suggested. All right, that sounds fair. Does this mean we can keep moving everything in? One of the volunteers asked. Nate looked up at the crowd of students. Some of them he recognized from Jennifer's anthropology class. Bring it all in, Nate said. They started moving again. You won't regret this, Jennifer said to Nate. So I'm thinking of calling it D and R Investigations. D and R? R and D sounds too much like research and development. How about rainy day investigations? Dave suggested. Jennifer and Nate looked to Dave, then back to each other. I like it, Nate said. Sold, Jennifer added. Nate extended his good hand to seal the deal, but Jennifer got up and smothered him with a hug instead. As she squeezed him, Nate realized the pain in his shoulder had faded to a dull ache. How about you help me make some breakfast for your crew, Nate suggested. That would be perfect, Jennifer said. Emily appeared again, this time with a tray. On it were four wine glasses and a bottle of red she had found in his kitchen wine fridge. Geez, Nate sighed. You guys are here five minutes and already you're helping yourselves to my wine. It's 7.30. Oh, don't act like you weren't going to say yes, Emily commented. And just because it's first thing in the morning doesn't mean we can't toast this thing, whatever it is you two are doing. We're business partners, Jennifer clarified. Yeah, let's go with that, Emily replied sarcastically. Before Nate could respond, Dave grabbed a glass and raised it. To rainy day investigations. They all touched glasses and enjoyed a sip of the wine. Wait a minute, are you 21? Nate asked Emily. Sure, she said. Want to see my ID? No, best that I don't. Come on, group hug, Jennifer insisted. She gathered Dave, Emily, and a somewhat reluctant Nate into her arms. This is going to be great. Wait, what about Bits? Nate asked. Bits doesn't do hugs, Emily answered. But your Wi-Fi is going to be insane, Dave promised. Epilogue The sign painter applied the finishing touches to the frosted glass on the new front door to Nate's house. Simple letters, gold with a black outline. Rainy Day Investigations. The extra upstairs rooms had been transformed by each of Jennifer's staff into their own personal retreats. They weren't there all the time, but sometimes it seemed like it. Nate wasn't quite sure when bits came and went, and learned not to ask too many questions. Emily had taken the opportunity of them having an office that they were sure they were going to stay in for more than a week to start organizing Dr. Day's case records. Many of them shared cardboard boxes, but there was no way to reference them except by asking Dr. Day, or in some cases Dave, if they remembered anything specific. Bits set her up with a sheet-fed scanner and some optical character recognition software that digitized all the related records for each case. Then she categorized them according to a variety of metrics she had developed, including the time frame for inciting incident, type of phenomena recorded, ages, and sexes of witnesses. Nate was impressed by her system, and Jennifer was amazed at how much data they had actually accumulated over the years. Bits had secreted himself into the attic. 
Nate had expected to see a spike in his electric bill, but it actually had gone down after Jennifer's team moved in. What he did up there was anyone's guess, but from time to time he would present Jennifer with an upgrade to some sensor or another, or find a way to reanalyze some data set. Nate hadn't figured bits out yet. He was the enigma of the group. He didn't even know the guy's real name. Dave, with a space of his own and inspired by Emily's work, made a concerted effort to organize the materials he had collected over the last five years of working on his thesis. After several in-depth sessions with Jennifer, he realized that all he really needed to do was write it up. The research was there. It was comprehensive and thoroughly referenced. So he started writing, or at least tried to. It was hard for him to make the adjustment. Jennifer assured him it would come. One day he would find himself in front of his computer with thousands of words on the page, and thousands more struggling to get it from his brain to the screen. Nate wondered if Dave needed some level of anxiety in his life. He suspected the graduate assistant's loyalty to Jennifer was related to his insecurity. Despite the outward appearance of him being exploited, working for her had been the most meaningful years of his life, and a part of him probably feared moving on. The longer he could draw out his thesis, the more he could delay that inevitable parting. Jennifer and Nate did end up setting up the downstairs den as a shared office. Jennifer found an enormous partner's desk that filled the center of the room. It had an e-well that went all the way through, and each side had its own collection of drawers. Nate had a laptop computer, but Jennifer preferred her desktop model. She didn't want her computer to be portable, and preferred the large, curved screen bits had procured for her. Jennifer's posters had found a home in the office as well. The remaining wall space was allocated to a few mementos and photographs from Nate's time on the police force, and a few from his great-uncle's era as well. To one side of the desk was a large bay window that opened out onto Nate's backyard, where one could catch a glimpse of the San Francisco skyline between the branches of the walnut trees in the yard. On the other side was a wide couch with a low table in front of it. Jennifer and Nate sat in their respective office chairs while their prospective client perched herself nervously on the edge of the couch, clutching her purse in her lap. She was an older woman, immaculately dressed and coiffed, but not ostentatiously so. Her voice was thin and frail, lacking confidence. The noises come from the back bedroom every night at almost nine o'clock exactly, she told Jennifer. But there's no one in that room. It's been empty for years, ever since my granddaughter moved out. It sounds like... She paused for a moment, swallowed, then continued in a whisper. It sounds like someone's being murdered in there. Are there any other rooms in the house where you've heard or seen strange things? Do you get that feeling that someone else is in the room, but when you turn around, no one's there? Oh, yes, all the time, the woman replied. Nate forced himself to keep from rolling his eyes. He turned to Jennifer. See, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. With everyone who comes in here, you leap to the assumption that there's something paranormal going on. Well, her story fits all the elements of a classic haunting scenario, Jennifer replied. It also fits the classic granddaughter wants to scare Grandma out of her house so she can sell it and get an early inheritance scenario as well. Not to mention the squirrels in the attic scenario. Oh, my granddaughter would never want to do that, the old woman declared. See, Jennifer said to Nate pointedly. Her husband is the one who wants me to sell. Nate gave Jennifer a clear I told you so look. Jennifer turned her attention back to the woman. Well, Mrs. Gladstone, we'll start by checking out your home for anything unusual. She cast a sideways glance in Nate's direction. And make sure there aren't any animals in your attic, she added. Does this mean you're taking my case? Mrs. Gladstone asked. Nate gave Jennifer a reluctant nod. Yes, we are, Jennifer answered. Now, tell me everything. Nate sat back and listened as Mrs. Gladstone poured out her life story to Jennifer.
Jennifer and Nate will return in Afterlife, a rainy day investigation. Thank you for listening to Part 15 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosek. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon. And follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.